Welcome to this episode of the Education Revolution Podcast. In this episode, Jerry interviews three experts on college admissions about the admissions process for alternative students and talks with them about how these students do in college. The inspiration for this first episode of the podcast came because of my own experience with the college admissions office at my local community college here in New York. I had already turned in the transcripts from previous community colleges I had attended, and they asked for my high school diploma. I had not expected this, as I had to give my high school diploma to the other colleges in North Carolina for admission, and I had assumed that because of that, it would not be required. They informed me that if I had it faxed to the college and brought to them, that they would accept it. So I did. I had my high school diploma, which had been approved by the North Carolina Department of Non-Public Education and accepted by every college I had applied to in North Carolina, faxed up to the college, and I handed it to the admissions counselor. What followed was a fiasco over whether or not my diploma was legitimate. It turns out that the acceptance standards for high school diplomas issued to homeschoolers was different in New York than in North Carolina. Eventually, I had to work out a plan that would allow me to get my high school equivalency and since no extra classes were required, it seemed like the best solution. However, I had realized that this was an issue that was probably faced by other alternative students as well. So I decided to make this first episode about this very subject. In this episode, Jerry interviews Bridget Lawler, Dean of Admissions at Marlboro College, Lori Dunlap, who is writing a book on college admissions for alternative students, and Peter Berg, principal of an alternative high school, who helps his students prepare for the college admissions process. The context of this is that, you know, uh, Wiley actually had some difficult experiences with the local uh, college, community college, uh, accepting his homeschool diploma. So we thought this would be an interesting podcast for people who are facing similar things. Sure. Okay, so... um, so, why don't you, so what's your name? So my name is Bridget Lawler. And, and Bridget, what do you do? I am the Dean of Admissions at Marlboro College in Vermont. Okay. And so uh, as Dean of Admissions, uh, what do you do? Wow. Uh, <laughs> A lot of stuff, huh? <laughs> so as the Dean of Admissions, um, I oversee enrollment and financial aid. Uh, for both the undergraduate and graduate uh, campuses at Marlboro College. Um, I am part of the senior staff, senior team. I help make decisions about um, all aspects of the college in terms of, um, gosh, everything you can think of. Um, My key role in admissions is to um, train admissions counselors to uh, develop recruitment and enrollment plans and strategies. Um, and you know, ultimately it's enrollment management and everything that that uh, encompasses. So um, a very heavy focus on uh, our work with financial aid and helping students to be able to afford their education here. Um, but really figuring out how do we attract students who are not only going to be admissible, but who are gonna be a good fit uh, for Marlboro. <laughs> now, now what, con- what percentage of students do you have there that are either, that are from some kind of educational alternative, either homeschooled or alternative school? 
Sure. We usually have about 10% of our incoming class come from a homeschool background. Um, the percentage is uh, probably a bit larger in that we, in, in when you go outside of homeschool, meaning like uh, Waldorf or um, democratic schools or um, uh, free schools, we 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 attract an awful lot of students that are coming from uh, what people would consider a non-traditional um, background in terms of their formative education and. Um, but it's actually quite a mix. We draw from public, we draw from private, and again, we draw from those non-traditional um, folks as well. I see. Yeah, I know of one student from Brooklyn Free School that came there. Sure, yeah. Uh, what is their name? You would ask me that, right? <laughs> <laughs> I would. But I think you would know who she was. Yeah, um, I think I do know who it is. Yeah, and and he's looking around the bushes because we think her dad's hovering around. He really wanted to come to school here. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. So, um, what's your experience about how well kids do who come from alternative backgrounds at Marlboro? Uh, the majority of them do quite well. Um, I think it would de depend on what their homeschool experience had been. This is an intentionally small college. We can never be bigger than about 300, 325 students. So for us, uh, homeschoolers, you know, tend to be a good fit because they're used to um, studying somewhat independently and then at the same time studying in, um, you know, through various, uh, I would say, interesting um, sort of group work within their community. We are very focused on community engagement. And so, again, if it's a student who is homeschooled but had a lot of introduction to working within their community, whatever that may look like, um, advocating for themselves, playing a role in determining what they want to learn and how they want to learn it, they are a, an, an excellent um, an excellent candidate for Marlboro and tend to do quite well here. No, I, I know that, that students that I've talked to who were either homeschooled or from alternative schools or democratic schools very often say that when they go to college, they're really surprised at how infantile <laughs> the other college students seem to be. Uh, yes. And I think they're kind of ready when their feet hit the ground, as I, if I could generalize. What do you think about that? I would agree with you 100%. And again, um, this is something that we vet out in the admissions process. So, you know, when we're interviewing a student, all students who are looking to come to Marlboro, we require an interview. And the it's a, it's a key component of the application process because for just the reason you stated, we want to get a sense of what their maturity level is. And also, what, you know, what are their aspirations? And most importantly, I can tell them all of the things that Marlboro has to offer them, but what I can't glean until I ask them is, what are they looking to give to the community? And what I find with homeschoolers is that that's not a, that is not a new or unique question for them, that they, are, that they are very much in that mindset of thinking in terms of, well, what can I offer to this experience or what do I bring to this or how do I articulate what makes me a, a great candidate? I think um, because of the nature of homeschooling and having to often explain 
what their education was like or involved and, and how it was worthwhile, they are very comfortable having those conversations um, from an admissions perspective about themselves, what their education was like, what they learned, how that transfers into the broader context of things. Um, so yeah, for us, I do. I think there is a different level for some um, of emotional intelligence. Right now, now uh, I know that some homeschoolers are kind of ready to go off to college when they're a little younger. Does that have you noticed that at all with some homeschoolers? Um, we have had that with some homeschoolers, and that has been a bit of a challenge for me. That is uh, usually where. I don't always jump in and interview candidates. My 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 folks usually do the interviewing, and we've had a one or two occasions where there was a question about the student being perhaps too young um, to be thrown into this mix uh, socially, and so that usually requires a, a conversation with me to kind of get a sense of where they're at. Again, what we don't want to have happen is somebody come here have a bad experience, and then try to recover from that bad experience, right? Right, um, right, right. The thought is we, we want them to be here because we think they're going to be successful. How do we make that, how do we ensure that they're going to be successful? So those conversations, again, I have a luxury that other schools don't. Because we are so intentionally small, I can um, have an awful lot of input and um and participation, and so do my counselors, with regard to the application process, the conversations around application. Um, the you know we have a lot of hard conversations with students about the good stuff, but also what are the challenges here. Um, and again, I think that homeschoolers, be by the very nature of their education, it is not unlike what they get here at Marlboro. So I think where it gets challenging for us sometimes is that students who are homeschooled can sometimes want um, want a different experience than what homeschooling provided for them. You know, there is this thought that maybe they want a bigger, more traditional experience. Right. I know that some homeschoolers are actually looking to go to a traditional school just because it's a different experience. So, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Generally, how how... How do they do in the long run? Do they tend to stay? Is the, is the attrition rate similar to other students or better or worse? Um, I would say that it is probably um, better for homeschoolers here at Marlboro than it would be for some others. And again, I think that has to do with the nature of their education before they got here. They are used to um, being allowed to express a diversity of interests to pursue a diversity of interests, they have um, they have a, a they already have developed a, an intelligence with regard to how they can study cross discipline and how they can um, make that something that's worthwhile. Well, how about how about independent study? Oh my gosh, for sure. Um, so um, here at Marlboro, the student faculty ratio is five to one. Um, and our classes are very small, and our 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 work here for the majority of students, once they get to be juniors, a significant portion of their work is one-on-one -on -one in tutorials with faculty, um, and it has an awful lot to do with them really sort of honing in on what they want to pursue in terms of study, 
and then advocating and working with faculty to figure out how do they create this meaningful body of work. So for, yeah, homeschoolers right. having that ability to have already worked independently and that ability to do that sort of self-discovery with regard to their intellectual pursuits um, does translate very well for them here. Now, getting back to the admissions process, what is required from you of a somebody from an alternative school or homeschooler? Sure. So we're looking for transcripts and academic evaluations. Um, if they've been issued a transcript by a homeschooling agency or a cooperative, you know, we're looking for that with their application. What we usually will tell them is that if they can include um, the texts that they've used, any online or community resources that they've used to approach their studies, how much time they allocated to each subject area, um, and if there are no grades available, if they can give narrative evaluations or provide narrative evaluations of the work and also how they performed in that work, that is tremendously helpful for us. Letters of recommendation, we require two letters of recommendation. Um, ideally, it would be from a homeschool evaluator, um, an academic or someone who could speak to your personal qualifications. Someone who knows them in a context outside of academics would be helpful too, an employer, um, gosh, coach, um, volunteer, supervisor. So, you know, sometimes where it's challenging is when, you know, it's your mom. Yeah, right. Well, do, do, do they have to have an actual high school diploma in order to apply? This is where it can get a little tricky for us because where they are going to need to have that would be with respect to um, whether or not they want federal financial aid. If they're looking for financial aid, they do have to demonstrate that they have completed a high school degree. Well, you know, for example, in Wiley's case, uh, he had a degree that was issued by his mother from their homeschool. Right. And uh, I think that was accepted by by their state. Uh, but uh, the local college that he was applying to was was pretty skeptical at first. Yeah, I think you have to. So for us, we're looking for proof um, that you've completed high school through homeschooling. And that would be in accordance with the laws of your state. So some way that you could show that you have met all of the criteria within your state um, to issue these credentials. And so, again, so, so, for example, in New York State, where you do not get um, a homeschool diploma from the state or anything like that, uh, would you say that in some cases a student might have to do a GED or something? I would say that they might have to. Um, and again... This is to get federal aid. Exactly. Not, not for admissions into the school. Exactly. If they don't need federal aid, then we can without hesitation, go through their transcript, look at their transcript, look at, you know, so for the, for example, if we were looking at, you know, Wiley's mom's homeschool, the more information that she could provide to us about what that curriculum looks like, what the curriculum was based on, how it aligns with what the requirements are. Again, the whole idea behind this, I think what gets lost is it's not punitive, right? Like it's not sort of uh, discriminating against the homeschooler. It's for us, for our perspective, it's 
how do we make sure that they are going to be at the level academically that they need to be in order to be successful at Marlboro? And so that's where, you know, looking at the transcript and really as as clear a narrative as we can get about what that coursework looked like is really helpful. Again, the challenge is for students who need federal, um, right. federal aid, that's where, you know, we really need to have some sort of documentation that it was recognized by the state in which they were well, living. Well, you know, in, in New York, it's getting a little technical, but uh, if you don't have a diploma and you do a certain number of credit hours, you do get a diploma sort of retroactively. Sure. And I suppose something like that could work there, where once they got a certain amount of credits, then they might be eligible for the federal aid. For sure. I think where where this, if I'm not mistaken, you know, Wiley's experience was with a, a large uh, community college. Did I get that right? Yes. So uh, I think, you know, some of the advice that I would give to folks who are homeschooled and looking for institutions is, you know, you get a real good feel for what the institution is like as a whole when you're dealing with them in the admissions process. And if it's rigid or there's no sort of personal nuance, like how do we work with you to make this work, um, it might not be the it may not be the best place for you to be. Um, I would I would be looking at not just the bright, sunshiny tour that the college is giving you. Right. Right. But. But how are they in the process when they're when they're working with you or not um, with regard to what your application looks like? And I think, again, you know, for us here, that's an area where I have a, a tremendous uh, advantage over some other schools. Um, you know, we have the capacity because we are small to really interact with the students who are who are looking at us and to be able to call up the mom and say, you know, I'm having a little bit of trouble here because I really need something that's going to be closer to this, that, or the other thing. And, and is there a way for you to provide it to us? Or I can forward to her perhaps like a, an example of another student within the state who submitted a transcript and what that looked like, right? I can delete out the name and I can say, here's sort of an overview of what this looked like. Right. Let's help you in translating it. What, what, what percentage of your students are, have some sort of scholarship help? Oh my gosh, I would say we probably award over 90% of oh, our wow. students with scholarship. Well, our scholarship rubric, again, true Marlboro fashion, I don't, you know, I don't, for people who are hearing this and not familiar with Marlboro, we are a little bit different than, um, and I know every school says that, but we sure, we really are a bit different in just about everything. So we have a rubric that we use when we're looking at students who are thinking about coming into Marlboro. And there are certain components that we look at. Um, when, when I say that we look at an application holistically, I am, I am not exaggerating. Test scores are optional here. So if you're somebody who didn't take an SAT or an ACT, that's fine. If you did and you feel that you did well, you can submit those. They'll work for you, so not against you. So that's you. not something that's required for federal aid or for admissions to Marlboro. Exactly. What we look at are, so, so we've developed this rubric that we look at. And when, we're, when we receive an application, the things that we look at are leadership, innovation, drive, perseverance, community engagement, extracurricular, academic performance, writing, 
recommendations, and academic rigor. So just to give you a sense of how right. broad we look, I have a student who went to a traditional school, really had some struggles academically, right? Like their GPA is not, but their writing sample that they sent to me is, yeah, right, is right. amazing, right? The thought, it's great. They have been an outstanding member of their community. They've started a program for um, theater for kids who are in homeless shelters, right? Like, I can award them scholarship, significant scholarship, based on that. So even though they've not necessarily done well academically, or maybe haven't taken an SAT or an ACT, I can still award them up to $16,000 a year based on these other aspects of who they are as a person. Okay, anything else you might like to add about uh, what people should know in applying or going to Marlboro? Well, I think when you are looking at Marlboro, the, the number one thing that you would want to look at is not necessarily whether you like to write, but are you a good writer? Meaning, do you have clear thought? Are you able to convey those thoughts? And I would actually suggest to students that they ask somebody else to assess that question. I find students are often really uh -huh. hard on themselves. So writing is a key skill to be successful at Marlboro. Writing is woven into every aspect of our curriculum. If you study dance, you will write. If you are a ceramicist, you will write. If you are interested in physics, you will write. By the way, do you have any distance learning programs there? Um, we do not. All on campus. <laughs> exactly. And that, and that gets harder to do these days, doesn't it? It does get harder to do, um, but we're we're kind of looking at it like the more other schools go in that direction, the more attractive we are because we're one of the few that actually offers that, I like to call it the thorough experience. Like if you want to really get in the woods and study intentionally and thoughtfully. And people should not be discouraged by the cost because, as you said, 90% of your kids have some kind of scholarship. Uh, so not only do they have some sort of scholarship, but we are meeting full need. And we are also right now in the second year of a really interesting scholarship program called the Renaissance Scholars, where we are offering one full tuition scholarship from one student from every state in the U.S. Wow. Um, yeah. And it's um, the qualifications for that are you have to apply and be admitted to Marlboro. Um, but then what we're really focusing on with those students uh, is their level of community service, leadership innovation, creativity, discipline, perseverance. So you have a foundation that has, uh, that's uh, awarded you a grant for that? Not yet. That's the next oh. step. This, <laughs> this is something that we've done. You just done. wanted uh, to have that diversity. We wanted diversity, and for us it was hard to do that. How about international students? International is an area where we are, are definitely trying to find ways to create more opportunities. And for us to do that, what we've done is we've started to partner with other institutions internationally. So there's a school in Prague, there's a school in China, and what we're finding is that that is now becoming a way for us to really develop more of a robust 
um, exchange internationally and then to attract more international students. What's been challenging for us with international recruitment is we have not been able to offer significant scholarship other than what I talked to you about, that 16,000, upwards of 16,000. You can't, you can't get federal scholarships to international students. You cannot. Um, and so it's really up to the institution to have a significant amount of funds to give to right, those students. Right. Otherwise, it becomes difficult to, to, to kind of kickstart that and to make yourself look attractive, not just to those who need it. So interestingly, with international admissions, if you are not a school who can offer significant uh, scholarships to international students, you will have a hard time attracting international students who can pay the full ticket. Right, right. Because the perception is you're in it for the money. You are not in it for the mission. Right. Okay, well, Bridget, I've really appreciated this, and this is going to be on our first uh, blog uh, broadcast uh, from Arrow, and um, we just, I think it's a subject that a lot of people uh, really want to know the answers to, and I think you've been very informative. So thanks a lot. Well, wonderful, and I can't thank you enough for uh, for giving me the opportunity to talk up Marlboro. Uh, it's a great place. We love it here, and uh, it's a good fit for homeschoolers. So I look forward to uh, possibly meeting some of the folks from uh, Arrow who are going to send us some great kids. All right. Very good. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Uh, my pleasure to have Lori Dunlap uh, with us today. And Lori, where are you right now? I am in Portland, Oregon, and we actually have a little son, so I'm very happy to be here today. Oh, you're in Portland, huh? But you, do, you don't live in Portland, do you? I, I do live in Portland, just oh, outside you... of it. Yeah, in a little town called Lake Oswego, just in the oh, suburbs. Oh, okay. Uh, so that that's uh, that's I didn't realize that. Okay, that's interesting. Because you were in Arizona, right? I did, yeah, live in Arizona for a while and uh, worked at the University of Arizona uh, during my time there. Oh, I see. You're right, right. By the way, um, that you wouldn't call that an alternative university at all, would you? I would not call that an alternative university, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's a land-grant university, so they've been around for quite a while and are, are known for you know a lot of their research that they do, so they're pretty traditional in, in several ways. I think it was Justin Morrow. Am I right? who started the first land-grant college in Vermont. That could be. I don't know that name, but we <laughs> have quite a tradition. Yeah, of land that's very interesting. Yeah. And so when you were at the university there, um, you were involved with the MBA there? That's right. I was a, a director of MBA programs, so I oversaw uh, three different programs. One was the experiential learning program, which was near and dear to my heart. I had been a management consultant prior to joining the university. And the experiential learning program was basically setting up um, consulting opportunities for MBA students um, as their capstone project in the program. So that was that was a wonderful program to be involved with. So that was sort of alternative, huh? That's sort of alternative. Yeah, they were they were really well known. The program I didn't start it. I picked it up um, from somebody else. But um, they were really well known. Uh, for the projects that they did and, and sort of were one of the first, I think, to really incorporate that as a full-time required part of the program. So how did you get radicalized? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I had kids. Ah. <laughs> at the time I was working at the university, my, my two boys were still pretty young and they both started um, kindergarten and first grade right about the time that I was working um, there. And, you know, they we had them at this great uh, charter Montessori school and uh, things seemed to be going pretty well at first. But then we just gradually saw that, you know, the, the spark that they had had when they were younger was, was kind of going out. And we weren't really sure what was going on, my husband and I, and um, started really paying attention and getting involved and trying to figure things out. But, um, you know, over the course of several years, by the time they were in first and third grades, we just decided, you know, let's let's try this homeschooling thing. You know, I think this speaks to what maybe lots and lots of people are experiencing all over the country and all over the world, and they don't know what to do. I agree. I, I come up even now, now that they're in seventh and ninth grade, even now, you know, I still come up against people who are, who have kids our age, the age of my children and are in high school, and um, they're still struggling with, with trying to figure out what to do. So I think all along the the span, we've, we've run into families, elementary school, junior high school, high school, who just, they know something's off, something's not quite working, it, it could be better, something like that. And, and they're not aware of the options that are available to them. And of course, that is what Arrow tries to do, is let people realize that no matter where they are, they have options, they have choices. Exactly. That's exactly right. And we need we need more people to, to know that they have these choices. So your, your mission is a fantastic one. So how did you kind of get over into figuring out how to help uh, students from alternative backgrounds applying to go to college? Well, it started with my own kids as they got older, and particularly as my younger one um, started really showing some interest in math and science. And he's, you know, I think a budding engineer. Uh, I knew that college was on the, you know, on the radar for him and started thinking about, oh, <laughs> what, what am I going to do to help him get into college? Because, you know, he's not at a school. He's not interested in going to school. I wasn't interested in having him go to school, although we did hold that option out there for him. Um, and he didn't have the kind of guidance um, that he might uh, were, were he in school. So, you know, I needed to become the guidance counselor. And having some higher education experience myself, I, I knew a little bit um, about that side of it. I had served on the admissions committee for the MBA program at the University of Arizona. So I knew a little bit about what that um, that side of things was like. So I just had to um, had to dig in and and start figuring out how how best to position him, um, how best to plan. Um, and I knew that other people were probably in that same position, so I figured I'll just I'll share what I'm learning as I learn it. When you were in that admissions position, did you get applications from students who came from alternative backgrounds? Only once. And actually, I'm in the process of writing a book right now about this, and that's the story that I'm opening the book with. So I'll give you a little a little preview of that. So Go most ahead. of the students I was at, you know, it was an MBA program. So these are graduate students. They're um, often, uh, I guess, the average age was like mid to late 20s, a few of them in their early 30s. So they had they had undergraduate degrees and several years of work experience. That was the traditional profile. But uh, we had this one student who submitted an application one year, and um, she did have an undergraduate degree, but it was her resume that really caught our attention and just seemed all wrong. She'd started, I can't remember the specifics of it now, she'd started like a couple of um, nonprofit organizations, she'd published a book, 
Um, she'd done all these things before on her resume, according to the dates, before she'd even started her undergraduate degree. And we just felt like, you know, this this is not accurate. This person is inflating <laughs> their experience. We really need to confront this person and let her know that this is not okay um, to provide false information on, <laughs> on an application. And so the I wasn't the admissions uh, director. I was just on the committee. So the admissions director said she would call and talk to her and let her know what we thought about that and uh, came back to me a few days later and said, guess what? This person was homeschooled. Uh-huh. So she actually did do these things. She had plenty of time and, and that's how she spent her high school years. Wow. So that was my first introduction to homeschooling. Um, I, I, I'd i maybe heard of it before. Not that I re- not that I really knew, though. Um so it was it was just sort of, you know, uh, really, really shifted my perception of of things. And it made me aware in a very real way of what alternative education can look like. And lo and behold, a few years later, I was I was homeschooling my two boys. So I gather that you one of the main things that you talk about is that there are three key questions that admissions people are likely to ask to alternatively educated students. Is that right? That's right. What are they? <laughs> what I decided to do, well, let me tell you how I, how I came to, the, to these questions. These aren't just things that I pulled out of the air. Uh, I decided when I, when I knew I was going to need to be helping my boys get into college that I needed to understand um, perceptions from the admissions side because I'd had that one experience and I knew that had been, you know, quite quite a shift in my perception of things. And I needed to know what undergraduate admissions officers were thinking when they see applications come through from homeschooled students or any other sort of non-traditional students, those that maybe have gone to democratic schools, students who, who don't come through with traditional transcripts, GPAs, um, test scores, those kinds of things. So I, I did a survey. I actually started with homeschoolers um, a couple of years ago, did a national survey saying, what are your questions? What are your issues? What are your concerns related to um, uh, college applications for your homeschooled students? And I got just a ton of great information back. Some shared stories of students that had already applied and gone through and what those challenges had been. Um, but mostly they shared their worries and concerns, things that they were questions that they had um, as they were planning to help their students in the next couple of years. Go through. So I took those questions and issues and took that back out in the form of another survey to uh, admissions officers across the country. And I had a little over 60 admissions officers respond. And I've since followed up with a few of them uh, with interviews as well, just to uh, dig a little deeper on, on some of the issues that have come up. So in the course of all of this, I, I came up with the three key questions that seem to keep appearing again and again in admissions officers um, concerns about reviewing applications from homeschooled students. So this comes directly from, from that group. Right. And the biggest one, of course, is um, asking whether the student is academically qualified. Because so many students are submitting their own transcripts, homemade transcripts with so-called mom grades, uh, admissions officers are a little bit skeptical about the value of the grades that, that come through on those transcripts. So for homeschoolers, they really need to make sure that they're demonstrating to these admissions officers that they are academically qualified and they need to do it in a way that isn't just reflected on their transcript. They need to support their, their transcript in some way. By, by doing what, for example? Some of the ways they can do that um, that admissions officers like to see is, um, for example, taking community college classes so that those grades are um, provided by some sort of outside 
objective person. Um, so that's that's the kind of thing they can do. They can take um, different kinds of SAT subject tests to also support those grades, showing that they that they have the knowledge that the that the transcripts are saying that they do. Uh, they can do that kind of thing, and also um, letters of recommendation from music teachers or whoever. Those kinds of letters can can also speak to the to the qualifications and the um, accomplishments of students. And so that's one. What's another one? Um, one of the other ones is about different appreciating different perspectives. This is another concern that admissions officers have. Um, because I think that there persists this idea that homeschoolers are sitting at home in their kitchen at the table uh, <laughs> with their mom, you know, right, studiously going through workbooks and and worksheets and those kinds of things, and and those outside of the homeschooling community don't um, understand how how often homeschoolers are really outside of the house and out in the world doing things. So we need to help them understand um, that we have been out in the world and interacting with all different kinds of people and do appreciate different perspectives. Um, that it hasn't been an insular um, educational experience through, you know, the first 18 years or so of their lives. And and the way to do this is to show um, I, lots of admissions officers like to see reading lists. So if you just keep it's a real simple thing to do. Right. Just keep a reading list um, of what you read through high school. Um, keep a log. <clears throat> Maybe write a summary of, of some of the ones that were most impactful or most interesting to you. And also a list of some of your experiential activities. Exactly. That can that can absolutely show that you've been out in, in the world a little bit. And that kind of this kind of leads over into the third question, too. These are actually um, somewhat related. Um, and standing out with your essays. So in your essay, you can highlight um, what you've done, as you said, out in the world, any any of your projects or volunteering that you've done, um, any anything like that that shows that you've interacted with all kinds of people and and really been thoughtful about the things that you're doing. Right. And you say essays about these things. Yeah, you can write you can really highlight your experience. Or it could, the, could be photographic, I suppose. It could be. A lot of schools now are offering the option of submitting portfolios. So if you're a creative type and you've been an actor or a musician or a photographer, or, you know, a visual artist of some sort, a painter or whatever, you can submit to many schools portfolios, too, to show to show what you've been working on. Now, I gather that you also talk a little bit about the pitfalls for people applying to go to a, a college uh, to a college from alternative backgrounds. Some of the challenges, you mean? Yeah, yeah. There, there are some, and that kind of goes to the to the third question too. I would say probably the biggest challenge that still persists, which is surprising, was surprising to me, maybe not to others, is this idea of socialization, <laughs> and that's you know again the the sitting at home at the kitchen table perception that a lot of people have of homeschoolers right, right. that they have been insulated and not socialized. Uh, and so that's that's the other sort of barrier that they come up against um, consistently and persistently um, is proving that they can interact with other people, work in teams, work in groups, get along um, with a variety of different people. So, you know, doing, um, you know, just about anything, acting classes or sports teams or, or anything like that, anything, scouts, whatever, whatever you do, you need to make sure that that's included in some way on your application and maybe even highlighted in an essay uh, as well. So, you know, homeschoolers sometimes call that the S word, socialization. The S word. <laughs> yes. 
Um, I write about that in my book too, about the eye rolling that if you say the S word in a group of homeschoolers, yeah. you just get the, oh, well, and I, we I think it's not necessarily a bad thing to actually throw out, if you're aware of it, the uh, research done uh, at the University of Michigan, which shows that homeschoolers do not have socialization problems. Yeah, I've done a lot of research in the course of this book, and there's some there's some fantastic research out there. I have the University of Michigan study. I have some others and and some quotes around um, you know some of some of the longevity studies that have been done as they not only enter college but go into their adult lives. They, they do, we they we do just fine, uh, but I somehow this this myth still persists that that homeschoolers are going to have difficulty on college campuses. Um, socializing and, and working in classrooms and teams. Would you say that this also applies to kids who have come from alternative uh, alternative schools or democratic schools? I would say maybe less so uh, because they've been more consistently part of a group, part of a community where they're showing up every day. So probably less so, but I don't think it would hurt um, because it is an alternative form of education that is less understood by those um, on the admission side, it doesn't hurt, I think, to to highlight some of the group activities um, that you may have been involved in. Well, I wasn't in. thinking so much of the group activities, but going back further to showing some of the ways that you have demonstrated academic proficiency. Yes, that would definitely be something that those from alternative schools should be aware of that they need to, to be able to demonstrate their academic qualifications. That's number one on the list for admissions officers. And, you know, I can put myself in their shoes and understand they don't want to admit students that are, that are going to struggle and potentially fail um, at the college level if they're not ready for it. Right. So we need, we need to help them help us by, by showing, yeah, I, I'm ready. And, and here's, how I, here's how I'm demonstrating that. Right. And you have a book uh, about about this or what is or you have one written or you're writing one or what? I'm on the I'm on the very last chapter, so it's not written yet, but it's it's so close. Uh, it's my first book and it's been quite a quite a journey writing this. So it's been it's been fun. And I'm also excited to, you know, get across the finish line with it, too. And right. this is the topic of the book is uh, college admissions for non-traditional students. Wow. I really look forward to uh, to seeing that. Well, uh, Lori, thanks a lot for sharing this information with us. And this is going to be on one of our very first podcasts. And I think people will really, uh, really enjoy listening to it. I hope so. Thanks very much for giving me the opportunity to talk about this. Okay. Thanks for coming on with us. Okay, so uh, we have uh, Peter Berg here with us today. Uh, Peter, how you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Now, this year you have a great new job, and what is that? Uh, so I am the principal of the new school in Kennebunk, Maine, and it is an alternative um, democratic high school uh, for students really uh, from mostly around the Kennebunk area, but uh, we have students that come as far away as uh, from Acton and even some uh, from New Hampshire. Wow. Well, you know, yeah, that's one thing, of course, we'd like to see is a lot more alternative alter, uh, alternative schools uh, that people can 
access for learner-centered education. What would you say your overall philosophy is? So, uh, you know, overall philosophy is we definitely do have the uh, democratic underpinnings of the school, which uh, means that students really have a say um, in everything, and not only a say, but their their voice is really acted upon, you know, um, and it's taken seriously. And they they really uh, they they have a very strong voice in the school, and they really, um, you know, they're they're able to dictate a lot of what a lot of what takes place even day to day. Uh, and then I would say we are, you know, definitely uh, self-directed education. I mean, that's uh, the goal of everything we do is to really, um, you know, have students direct where they where they want to go. I mean, students actually choose a lot of the classes and, and um, you know, ask for the classes that they want and they can go in a lot of different directions. So that's that's really the ultimate goal when students kind of come to the school is really uh, to move them in that direction. When you, when you say... When you say they have a voice, how does that manifest itself? How do you do that? So, uh, you know, some concrete examples is we we actually have, uh, you know, we do have many meetings, which is uh, kind of foundation of uh, democratic process. Uh, but one of the, the the main examples that I can think of is uh, they have a say in, uh, you know, so their voice in community agreements. So it's kind of like, okay, so what are the things that, uh, we are going to do, you know, this year at the school or we even, you know, we re- revisit them frequently, but it's everything from kind of like use of technology to, you know, how do we treat each other to uh, what does the da- daily schedule look like? You know, what is the, uh, you know, the schedule for each quarter and each semester look like? Um, and again, what classes do they want? Um, so they, they really have, um, you know, a strong voice in that and what really what they come up with is what we enact uh you know there there are a few examples of things that uh we couldn't pull off uh for this coming semester um but you know uh in 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 years to come i i think those things can happen and it was only because we just didn't have the resources to do it um but you know the um uh many ideas that come across from the students are definitely enacted um and it just manifests in uh, the way they actually are, you know, they go about everything that they do. We actually had a visitor uh, last week who uh, actually uh, has been at Aero conferences and wants to start uh, her own school in Iowa, a democratic school. And she was uh, extremely impressed with the students and just the way they are really comfortable with um, expressing their voices and knowing that uh, when they do that, that it's going to be respected and acted on. Well, you know, you have, um, you say you have meetings. Now, do the students actually have an equal vote, an equal voice, an equal vote in those meetings? And what kinds of things could they decide? And maybe what kinds of things couldn't they decide? Right. Um, so, yeah, at, at the meeting, students have an equal voice. Um, when we vote on some things, sometimes we just take a temperature reading. Uh, when it's just kind of like, you know, how, do, how are people feeling about this? And it's kind of like a thumbs up, thumbs to the side. It means, you know, you're sort of indifferent and thumbs down means, you know, um, you don't like it. And then we have something called fist to five, uh, where a five means, you know, you love the idea and you will help make it happen. Uh, four is, you know, I really like this idea. I want it to go forward. Three is, um, you know, I, I, I like the idea. 
Uh, two is I'm really not sure. I really am not feeling good about this. One is I really don't like it. And a fist means I'm actually going to block this because I have either, you know, uh, cons- uh, concerns about the legality of it or some other concerns. Now, when you, when you say block it, could one person block a vote? Yeah. So really, um, you know, one person, you know, putting up a fist means that um, basically all the work that was done beforehand and everything that led up to that meeting can really uh, can really stop that moving forward. Well, isn't that kind of like tyranny of the minority? Uh, kind of, but we try to also look at consensus. So we have sort of a consensus, you know, democratic consensus model. Now, if somebody's putting up a fist, that means they really have, you know, strong, you know, moral or legal objections. Um, and that's happened. I, I that's that happens very, very rarely when someone will put up a fist. You might see some ones or some twos. But a fist really means like, wait a minute, this is you know what we're actually uh, proposing here is illegal. Well, give me give me an example of some of the kinds of things that they can actually decide. Right. So so students decide on things like uh, the schedule. What is the schedule going to look like? Um, you know, what kind of classes are they going to have? Uh, what are the technology agreements? So w- what kind of use of technology? What is that? You know, what does it mean? What does it look like? Um, they decide on, you know, what their intensives, which are, uh, which we do is three week intensives, uh, which sometimes are trips abroad. Sometimes they're uh, intensive studies here in the U.S. And they're really about, uh, you know, sort of a, a service learning model, but also really based on students' interests. So they decide on that. They decide on what they uh, do during, you know, uh, what we call downtimes. Uh, you know, we have things that we like to do as a school, like all school learning, and they decide on that. And uh, so they really have a, a say in, uh, in really a lot of what happens. They have a say over whether we hire uh, certain, you know, teachers in certain areas or, you know, school counselors or things like that. So they, they really have a lot of say. So really, what, 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 what could they possibly not be able to decide? Maybe the board would be the one to decide that. Right. So the board would, uh, you know, decide on things like, uh, you know, financial issues um, and, and things like, OK, um, do we want to, you know, increase our insurance um, to get an umbrella policy? You know, the uh, the board would vote on that. And, you know, students, um, I mean, I suppose students could vote on it, but, um, you know, that's usually something that the board votes on. Um, and so that's not really a, um, you know, something that would go to the all school meeting. Do, do, you, do you have students on your board? Uh, we do. We actually have we we have currently have one student on the board uh, and they're there. We do open it up to more students, uh, but we currently have one uh, who is very active on the board. And we actually have other committees where students are really active on, like uh, facilities committee and the education committee um, and, you know, and various other committees that students are actually, uh, you know, a part of. Can your can your student board members actually legally vote? Yeah, they well, they 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 do get a vote. The 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 member on the student member on the board does get a vote. Um, okay. So they vote. You know, they they vote. Uh, in, in general, you know, the board meetings. Um, you know, if things do, if if there's things that only the board would vote on, um, that would happen in the board meeting. But very rarely is it just something that the board would vote on. A lot, most of the items go to the all school meeting where you know parents and teachers and students and even community members come. Um, and, you know, it's an all school meeting. And if there's things we need to vote on, 
you know, as a whole community, we'll vote on it there. Do your parents get to vote in the all-school meeting? Yes, they do. If yeah. they if they come. If they come, yeah, and that's and that's the thing. And and you know, we we have really good participation. I mean, they do you know they do show up and they do come and and um, uh, but you know, folks know that if they don't come to the meeting, there may be an item on the agenda that they won't get to vote on. Um, oh, I see. And yeah. Okay, well, let's move on into what our main thr- the main thrust is of this podcast. Uh, do, do you find that most of your kids or many of your kids are interested in going to college? Oh, yeah. And in um, the, the 16 years uh, that the school has been in existence, uh, it's, it's been a very high percentage of students uh, that have gone on to college. And in the 16 years, uh, only one student didn't get into their first choice. Wow, that, uh, that's an amazing track record. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And, um, and you know, but they did get into their second choice. Uh, well, what, so we what, do, what are some of the colleges that your students have been able to get into? Uh, so they're actually uh, from, you know, from last year's group. Uh, there are a couple at uh, Amherst College. Uh, there's uh, a couple at um, uh, the University of New Hampshire. And then... Uh, there's actually a couple who decided that they were going to do some traveling uh, this year. So they're kind of doing a gap year and looking into colleges for next year. Um, and there's, you know, um, they have a, a they're actually will be starting to go through the admissions process actually really soon. Uh, but they decided that they were going to do a gap year this year and and do some traveling and and work on um, something that they did for their senior project, actually kind of moving it uh, a little more forward and actually kind of. Uh, you know, wanting to kind of delve deeper into that a little bit. So they decided to do that. Well, let's talk about that application process. So what is it for somebody from an alternative high school like yours? Right. So so the, the really the good news is that uh, there are many colleges now, and, and these are, and I'm talking ranked colleges um, that, you know, don't require SATs. Um, you know, that don't require uh, any sort of testing that actually look for uh, students who have, you know, uh, what we call alternative assessments um, and things like portfolios and senior projects and things that uh, that actually will help the admissions counselor at these colleges really get to know the students and know them on a very different level. Uh, so the, So the process in terms of you know, you have to fill out all your information and submit the application and pay the fee. Uh, that's all really the same. I mean, that doesn't really change in terms of, you know, having to do that sort of paperwork. Uh, but what you submit in terms of, you know, showing that you're ready to be a part of that uh, college or university is that, you know, you're looking at things more things like portfolios and alternative assessments and, uh, you know, different types of recommendations um, you know, that we're able to give because, you know, what the students are doing in our, in our school is on a pretty different level. Uh, it's not just looking at test scores. It's not just looking at, um, okay, you know, you wrote this essay and, you know, that, that, that's great and that's part of it. Um, but, you know, you're actually able to show more and show what you've been doing. So, um, you know, in my, in, in my experience, and I've helped, you know, students get into colleges and look at, kind of the admissions process and talk to, uh, you know, folks who do college admissions. And, you know, I, they they love when they get applications that have, you know, um, that that stand out and are different and are not just, you know, okay, here's an SAT score and here's, 
this, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot more robust and it really shows that, you know, students are self-directed learners and they, and they're really interested in, you know, um, self-directing their education, but also they know how to really go deep and into, into, to anything, you know, and really to integrate their learning. Have you gotten to some sticky points with some of the colleges where you had to do some unusual things in order to complete their application? Um, you know, not not really. I would say because of, you know, what we do is, um, again, you know, pretty robust and there's so much, um, you know, to show and what the students kind of leave with um, that, you know, it really, uh, I mean, there there may be a couple of, you know, minor tweaks here and there, but I wouldn't say anything really um, unusual or anything that we really felt like, um, you know, the students weren't prepared to do. Uh, you know, we do have a fair number of students who, um, you know, um, who like to, um, you know, apply to say art colleges and, and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, they've had, they've been working on a pretty significant portfolio in order to submit. So there hasn't really been anything that I, that I feel like we weren't, really prepared for and we really had to do a lot of backtracking. I just think, you know, some minor adjustments, but nothing really major. And for example, University of New Hampshire, which is a fairly traditional, you haven't had a problem with that one? No, no. I mean, uh, and again, I think it's it's more about, um, you know, what, what our students are able to, you know, to produce and to show. And I think um, you know, and, and students know, they, they, they you know, we, we look at the colleges with them and they know that you know, there's, there are many, many colleges that are alternative, let's say like the Goddard College or even Antioch or, uh, you know, places like that that are a little more, um, you know, an alternative model um, that, that may, may be a really good fit for them. And then they also know that there's colleges that are that are a little more on the traditional side. Um, and it really depends on, you know, what they're looking for and what they want. Um, and really, I mean, there there hasn't been, you know, any colleges that we felt like, you know, uh, students really weren't prepared for, or at least prepared for the application process. Wow. So, so that's, that's very good news, I think, for people who are thinking or considering an alternative model, and they worry whether their child will be able to get into uh, the college of their choice. Yeah, and, and I agree. And, you know, and, and uh, another thing about our school is, you know, we are a standards-based school. Um, so, you know, there's, uh, you know, we do hit the main learning standards and, and, um, we, you know, we, we award credit and, you know, students that, you know, leave our school, you know, it's an accredited diploma. Do, do you give grades? Uh, so we, um, we, we don't exactly, we award credit and, you know, we have a model where we give, um, you know, uh, it's really like a, a zero to five um, you know, system where, uh, you know, five would be, you know, consistently exceeds, you know, expectations. So that's not much different than ABCD, is it? Uh, it's, it's, it's somewhat different, but we, we do, you know, we do a lot of narratives as well. Uh, so that's really the, the meat of what we do is more narratives. Um, so it's just, you know, th th that kind of thing, you know, the zero to five is more just kind of a, you know, kind of where are you at kind of thing. It's not, really an ABCD. It's more like kind of where you're at and, and measuring against, you know, where you came from, right? You know, some more than, okay, well, you have to get, you know, 90 of these correct to get an A. This is more, you know, kind of measured, measuring your own progress. Do, do your students take the SATs sometimes? 
Uh, they do. No, it's it's interesting because we just had a PSAT uh, at our school uh, a couple weeks ago, um, and students who you know want to do that and know that um, they want to go to a school that maybe uh, does require the SAT, uh, they they know they can get some practice doing it, and you know they'll take the SAT and and um, you know, if that's what they want to do, if there's if there's colleges that they want to go to that require that, then they'll take it. Um, if not, then there's really no need for them to do it. Uh, but again, we do offer the uh, you know PSAT, you know, for students to get some practice and just kind of see how it goes and see how it is, and and uh, you know that also gives them a good a good measure as to whether they want to take the SAT to to get into a college that requires that. Uh, but there are so many now that don't and so many, you know, great programs that don't require it, um, that it's really not an issue if they decide they don't want to go that route. Is, is your school accredited or is that an important issue? Uh, we're accredited. Yeah, we are definitely accredited. By what? Um, uh, by, by the state of Maine. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're accredited. So we're an accredited school. I, like I said, our diploma, uh, you know, when you walk out of there, it's accredited, it's recognized anywhere. Um, you know, any of the colleges, it's a, it's a recognized accredited diploma. Um, and, you know, it's also if, if uh, in, in the event that we do have a student that leaves the school and say uh, goes back to um, maybe their public school district or, uh, you know, another private school or wherever, um, you know, our diploma is recognized. Uh, so all the credits and all the things that they got are transferable. Great. Well, anything you want to add to all this? This is a really terrific information. Uh, I just, you know, it's like like you were pointing out, Jerry. I think there's, uh, the, it's it's good news because there's there's so much out there now for, uh, you know, maybe students and families that are going an alternative route, uh, and and you know they're not maybe in a in a public school system and they're doing something a little bit different, uh, but want to you know look into higher education and want to continue uh, their education. There's so many, um, you know, good choices out there and places that you know, recognize that learning isn't just about, you know, what you got on the SAT. Um, and that doesn't always, you know, um, that's not really a measure of your success even, you know, uh, in college. So I think, um, you know, I, I, I feel good about what I've been seeing with higher education that, you know, a lot of places are going, um, going in that direction and understanding that there's, you know, there's more that they can be looking at. Um, and, and there are some places that, you know, We'll we'll look at SAT scores if you take them, but they're not required. Uh, so that's the other thing. So so taking the SAT doesn't necessarily mean well. If I go to the school, they're not even going to look at it. Um, you know, some of them actually do. So um, it's not that they totally just don't. You know, yeah, part dismiss of the picture. All of yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Peter, for being on. And this is a great information and good news, I think, for people looking at alternatives. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me on. And um, yeah, like you said, uh, you know, this is really good news for people who are looking for alternatives. All right. Take care. Okay. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Education Revolution podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can always email us at jerryero at aol.com. That's J-E-R-R-Y-A-E-R-O at aol.com or call the Arrow office at 516-621-2195.